This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland, Seasons of Awakening, is the second of four given at the Morning Star Retreat at San Geronimo Lodge, Taos, New Mexico, on December 5th, 2011. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Uh, a little bit ago, a couple weeks ago, in Santa Fe, we were talking about the seasons of awakening, and we talked about, um, in particular, the autumn of awakening. And the sense that that seems quite important to me is that um, awakening is not just a sudden flash of something, and it's also not a kind of straight line march to the Emerald City. You know, that that it has cycles and rhythms and movements. It's less like embracing a pillar and more like following a snake. And so one of the ways that, that I think about it is as seasonal, that there are these times and seasons in awakening. And that doesn't necessarily mean that when it's autumn you're going to experience the autumnal aspects of awakening, um, or now you begin to experience the wintry aspects. It may be that you, like our ancestor Nakagawa Soen, find that in the midst of winter you find invincible summer. And if that is the case, then yay. But um, it's likely that you will experience some wintry aspects as well as some autumnal aspects. So I wanted to talk tonight about this turn from the autumn of awakening into the winter. It seemed like a good night to do that. In the um, autumn, of awakening. We do as you do in the autumn. We do a lot of harvesting and a lot of pruning. The harvesting part has to do with the kind of um, concentration we do when we come into a retreat like this or at other times in our lives, but let's talk about it in terms of this retreat. So we are harvesting we are gathering, we are concentrating. And in order to do that, in order to pull energy in and ground it down and begin to develop that great engine of samadhi underneath our practice, that great engine of deep, concentrative meditation, we do some fasting. The koan tradition um, speaks about the problem of leaking. And what it means by that is that when we allow our energy to be pulled out by distractions, it leaks. And anybody who's ever engaged in any kind of creative process knows that one of the worst things you can do is talk about it too soon because something leaks away before it's ready. It hasn't concentrated enough. Um, in, in the Cohen tradition, one of the main source of leaks are habits and opinions, that when we allow our habits and opinions to 
shape our heart-mind. We leak a lot of emotion. Um, it doesn't get plowed back in to this concentration. You notice I'm not saying it doesn't get um, cut off or it doesn't get rejected. It doesn't get plowed in. It leaks away. So we fast at all different levels. We fast um, from whatever um, habits we have from, I don't know, whatever it is you do. <laughs> whatever it is we do, each of us, that, um, that, that help us through the day. We fast from um, emails and the Huffington Post and whatever else we do that gets us through the day. All of those things that pull our attention out, we find we can actually do without for a week. It's, it's amazing. And we keep that energy in. We keep that energy for, for meditation. And as we sit, it is to be hoped that we begin to fast from our habits of heart-mind. We begin to do less of those things we're always doing that cause us difficulty. And that energy is liberated to get um, plowed into that, those um, deep, concentrative states. So that's the, that's the harvesting part of the autumn of awakening. And as we do that, we might find that there are um, strange fruits and vegetables in the field. We're surprised to discover them. And that's all right. So we bring them in. We let them in, too, and um, see what there is to say about them. And at the same time, we're doing this pruning. We're doing this letting go. So there's a differentiation to be made there between leaking and letting go. And um, one is more prone to benefit our practice, and one is more prone to distract us from our practice. I place no value on that. I simply report, and you can decide what you want to do with that. So um, if something is... is um, Leaking, you're still attached to it. It's sort of, you sort of follow the leak as, as it spreads out from you. If you're letting something go, it's genuinely dropping. It is, it is coming to find a separate existence from you, and you are free of it. It gets to go live its life in freedom somewhere else. So that's how you kind of differentiate between, between leaking and, and letting go. So this is the pruning. This is the fasting. This is the um, letting things fall away of the autumn. When we think of that in the West, often images of renunciation come to us because that's how that's generally framed in, in many Western traditions. Not all, but many. Uh, in the koans, in most of the Mahayana, Renunciation, um, the emphasis is not on what is put down or um, let go of. The emphasis is on the space that gets created by that putting down and what becomes possible when you do that. So, for example, in um, some autumn in the past, someone asked Yunnan, when the tree withers and the leaves fall, what is that? 
So there's a great image of autumn. The tree is sort of closing down and the sap is going down to the roots and the leaves are all falling. What is that? That's an image of renunciation. When things get simpler. And Yunmen responds by saying, golden wind is revealing itself. So he's flipped it on its head and said, okay, good, that's good, that stripping away is good, but don't forget what that renunciation makes possible. It makes possible the revelation of the golden wind. So that's how fasting, stripping down, letting go are held in the tradition. We keep looking for what becomes possible in doing that. What is the golden wind? that is revealed. In this this autumnal time of awakening, what we do uh, very well is what's called the wisdom of differentiation. And you might remember those of you who were around a couple of years ago, we talked about the wisdom of differentiation and the wisdom of equality as being two inextricable and equally important aspects of wisdom. So the wisdom of differentiation is the one that brings all those strange fruits and vegetables in from the garden and washes them off and looks at them and thinks, okay, that I'm going to make jam out of. That's going straight onto the compost pile. Right, it's um, what sees the important differences. What the 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 wisdom that knows that when you're speaking to a three-year-old child, you speak to a three-year-old child, and that's different than if you're speaking to um, a sixty-five-year-old parent. So that's the autumn is a lot about that that kind of wisdom of differentiation. But what happens as we move into winter is we move towards the wisdom of equality. We move toward that image I mentioned last night of the snow as Guanyin's cloak that covers everything in this silver silver cloak that creates a sense of the equality of everything. All of the the differences, the eccentric bits, the things that make things distinct from each other are covered under this one um, one white silver coat. And so we move into a time which is n- neither more nor less important than being able to differentiate things, being able to discern what's jam and what's compost. It's just a different place. It's a different time, equally important. And that is when we see everything is equal. Everything has equal value. Everything has equal meaning. Everything has no meaning at all. So um, on that night we commemorate in this retreat when Shakyamuni was sitting under the tree, at a certain point when things opened up for him, he said, how wondrous. Everything from the beginning, every being from the beginning, has always had this heart-mind into which I am now awakening. Every being has always had this heart-mind 
into which I am now awakening. That's the wisdom of equality, to say, my awakening happens in, the, in this vast heart-mind that we all share equally, that we all make together. Um, it's probably more accurate to say instead of we enter this heart-mind to say that we realize that this heart-mind has always been there and we've always been there. So that's the great gift of the winter of awakening, of the wisdom of equality, is that recognition that we too are part of this one vast, um, completely interpermeated heart-mind. And the most um, lovely description I have come across of that in a long while, I spoke about last Thursday night at Cerro Gordo, um, with the, the new book on the, the um, contemporary Japanese women who are developing domestic Zen, developing Zen in their in their homes in the midst of their um, their lay lives, and they spoke about this vast net of what they called interconnectedness or interrelatedness, and that for them healing, which is how, what they saw as the um, the aim of their practice. Healing was to deeply know, not intellectually, but with every cell in your body, to know that each of us is an integral part of that interrelatedness. Integral, necessary part of that interrelatedness. And when they thought of prayer, they thought not of a petition addressed to a particular figure, but a request that is um, put out into this vast interrelated net. And um, at the same time that they put these prayers out into the net, they were also listening for them all the time from others. So there was this reciprocal relationship of compassionate exchange, compassionate listening, compassionate response to prayer. And I really loved that description. It, um, it meant a lot to me and felt like a beautiful evocation of this um, wisdom of equality. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship between the wisdom of discrimination and the wisdom of equality and why it's so important that we have both of them and we, um, we let them inform each other, make each other wise. <coughs> if we have um, differentiation without equality, as human beings we have a tendency to base our differentiations on things like, I like this, I don't like this, this is good for me, this is bad for me. That's how we make our um, discriminations and our judgments. If we have the wisdom of equality, if that differentiation is riding on this kind of wave of an understanding of the equality of all things, suddenly how we feel about it becomes instantly so much less important and not the basis of differentiation. The basis of differentiation becomes looking and listening, paying attention, letting things speak for themselves and trying to really see and really hear and really understand 
who they are, what they're saying, what's happening, which is a very different basis for discriminating than I like this or I don't like this. So that's the kind of thing you can have when you have um, both wisdoms operating together. As I think I said last night, when I think about the winter of awakening and the wisdom of equality, I notice a kind of relaxation in myself. It's as if all of that um, discriminating function that's connected to the obsessions of the self can go off duty. And how great is that? You know, How great is that, that to just let that rest? to let that lie fallow under the snow of equality and for a while to just take each thing as it comes across, across that snow. There can be some um, disconcerting things about, um, about the, the winter of, of awakening. And one of the things has to do with in this position of radical equality and in this position of letting go of the usual criteria of the self, we can feel um, off balance or destabilized or uncomfortable. We can feel the, a process of deconstruction going on inside of us, which can be um, tough. It can be difficult to go through. And what I want to say is that when we feel that discomfort, that uncertainty, that feeling of being off balance or tilted, um, it's natural to say there's something wrong. There's a problem. I've got to fix this. My, My practice has gone wonky and I've got to do something to regain stability. And so what I would like to encourage you to do, you'll be shocked to hear, is the opposite which is don't try to regain stability. Try to stay with whatever it is that's off balance, off kilter, uncertain, feeling like it's being deconstructed, because that's part of it too. Hear this, that is part of it too. That's as important a part of the practice as anything else. And our goal is not to right the ship as soon as it starts um, healing in one direction or the other, but to ride that and to see what happens with it. Um, if, if that's hard to accept, th- think about this. In the winter, um, plants die and animals go hungry and branches crash to the ground under the weight of snow. But would we say that winter has gotten off track? Would we say that winter is wrong? No, we would say that too is part of it. That too is part of the cycle of the seasons. And the same thing in our practice. There's nothing wrong. There's only a wintry thing happening. Can you go from just not trying to jump in and fix it too soon to actually trusting it? Can you take the ride? Can you allow yourself to be knocked over? Can you spend a good amount of time really doubting, really not knowing, 
and trusting the doubt. That's a very odd thing. But can you trust the doubt as equal to everything else, equally important to everything else? If you find yourself thinking, this can't be right, this has got to be wrong, I've got to um, shift my posture or change my breathing or fix my thoughts or I've got I've to do something about this thing. See if you can examine the belief that's underneath the impulse to fix. I think I ought to fix this. I think I'm off the track because I believe what? What do I think about the way things ought to be? And examine that belief. Is it true? Can you know if it's true? And again, um, I'll say something I've said a lot of times before and apparently think it's important to repeat, (laughs) which is remember that by coming here, by sitting down, by spending your time like this, you are asking for something unprecedented. You are asking for something outside the realm of what you already know, because if you already knew it, You wouldn't need to be here. You could be off having fun somewhere. So if that's the case, if if you are surrendering yourself to the possibility of something you can't yet imagine happening, remember that you can't yet imagine it. You don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know what it's going to take. You don't know what the path from here to there looks like. So don't try to fix things too quickly. Don't think you know. You might not know. And your, um, this, this moment in your awakening, this event in it, might appear as a very strange fruit or vegetable from the garden. So don't throw it onto the compost too quick. Hang out with it for a while and see if there is something there that's important. As you do this in general in your life and in particular as the week goes on, you may find yourself at moments or for days or for the rest of your life standing on the bare ground, that bare ground of winter on that cloak of white stretching to the horizon under an infinite sky. It's possible that you will do enough deconstructing to get there. It's possible that things will fall away whether you will or no, and you find yourself there standing on the bare ground under an infinite sky. There's something indescribably beautiful about the simplicity of that place, the perfection of it, And the way when anything comes toward us on that bare ground, we see it so clearly against the snow, against the sky. And we meet it so simply and so clearly. It's also true that it can be a disconcerting experience. Um, It can seem as though this, all this falling away has gone on a bit too far. 
and there's a disorienting quality to it. You might experience it for an instant, or you might experience it for a while. Um, and again, I read a, a really good description of, of such a moment in another book I was reading at the same time as the, um, the book on domestic Zen in Japan. It's a book called Searching for Guanyin by a Canadian woman who went to China, lived in China for two years, and did pilgrimages all around the country to places associated with Guanyin, looking for her because she'd had this, since childhood, this very strong sense of affinity um, for Guanyin. And she goes through all kinds of processes, and she's looking for this particular image. There's an image that's come to her in dreams and visualizations, and she's, she's on the trail for this this particular image of Guanyin looking a certain way in a certain location. And as time goes on, she begins to realize that what she really needs to do is accept the formlessness of Guanyin. And that's really difficult. So she walks into a store that she had been in a year before. And the store is full of the heads of... um, bodhisattvas that have been removed from whole statues. And so it's a a room full of these decapitated heads of bodhisattvas. And she remembers that um, the year before, when she walked into this place, she was really gazing at them, and it upset her. And she wanted to gather them all to her and take them away and preserve them. And this year when she came into the store, because she was in this unsettled place where she was beginning to consider the formlessness of Guanyin. It wasn't she who was looking at the heads, but the heads who were looking at her. And they began to say to her, what are you looking for? We don't mean anything. We have no meaning at all. And this is terrifying. So this is that really sometimes difficult aspect of standing on the bare ground. The things we thought we cared most about for a while have no meaning at all. We've lost our, um, our, our usual way of understanding them, of seeing them, of feeling about them. They're just there and they're sort of frighteningly autonomous. And I think there's Maybe there's two parts to that fear. And one is certainly the fear of the loss of self. If I am not the things I think are important, if I am not the things I think are horrible, if I'm not the things I think are beautiful, if all of those meanings fall away, who am I? And what is the world? What is the world if each thing is entirely autonomous. Each thing is free of the meanings I put on it. That can be fearful. That can be disorienting, to say the least. So, fortunately, after winter comes spring. And in the in Sarah Truman's book, as she's standing in this shop where everything has started to laugh at her, 
um, and she's feeling pretty horrified. A stranger, a woman named Lily, comes up to her and starts talking to her and whisks her out of there and takes her off to lunch. Very smart thing to do. And starts talking to her about the formlessness of Guanyin, not from the perspective of what is not there, not as an absence of her, the image she had held on to so tightly, but as a different kind of presence, the presence of possibility. And she's a very um, modern woman, and she speaks of Guanyin as, as a wave, um, as, a, as a field, as a vibration. She calls her supersonic. She's um, the one who hears all sounds by being supersonic. And gradually, um, the author begins to, begins to see that that very bare ground of formlessness holds tremendous possibility. Suddenly, it can be a wave of vibration, something supersonic, and anything becomes possible. So, if we are willing to hang out with what is uncomfortable, to hang out with what it feels like when the meanings fall away. Something else can happen. That renunciation can lead to the blossoming of a different kind of spring when things we could never imagine, when meanings we could never imagine suddenly become possible. had this um, thought, it's, it's so hard to describe any of this in um, reasonable language, and I apologize for that because I get up here and talk anyway, and I'm sorry. But I see them in, um, sometimes I see them in, in images or, or topographies, landscapes. And this is one that came to me about this passage that we're talking about. Um, from winter into spring. Um, do you remember that another thing that Shakyamuni says on that long night under the Bodhi tree is earlier on, before before the thing we talked about before, he says um, he begins to, he begins to see the nature of his suffering, the nature of his habits of the heart mind, and he says, "Oh carpenter, I see you." over and over again through countless lifetimes you have built this house of pain and now I am ripping out the rafters and tearing down the ridge pole and I will never build this house again okay so here's this image of the house of pain that we we construct <laughs> that we spend time and energy and you know um, our good hearts and souls on constructing and then maintaining and repairing and protecting and decorating and redecorating and adding wings and building swimming pools. Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, we construct this house of pain. And what happens, what beautifully happens in the winter of awakening is the house of pain crashes to the ground in an instant. Oh, carpenter, I see you. And I will never build this house again. 
And there you are, standing on the bare ground with the house gone. And what do we do with the feeling that to be on that infinite plane with no horizon under an infinite sky with no end how do we live there it's hard to stay right there like that and in fact we're not meant to we're not meant to we have to come to that place we have to pass through that place we have to be willing to stand there but it's not a place we stay so what's the next thing Then um, it came to me, I was reading an essay on deep ecology, and it came to me that the etymology for echo in ecology is earth household. And I thought, in that moment when we understand that being on the bare ground of winter is exactly the same as being in the earth household is recognizing that that's where we live that's the turn from winter into spring so that we bring a kind of warmth to that winter landscape we bring the warmth of spring we bring the warmth of other beings we bring the warmth of that vast net of interrelatedness that the Japanese women speak about. But it's the same place. The bare ground is the wisdom of equality. The earth household is the wisdom of differentiation. It's when we can see things distinct against the bare ground and we know that everything shines with the radiance of that ground. Everything shines equally with the radiance of that ground. And in the earth household we know that it matters how we treat each of those radiant things. It matters that we are in relationships of reciprocity, of compassionate reciprocity, that we send prayers out and we receive prayers and we do what we can about them and we trust that others in this net will do what they can about ours. That's the earth household. And those two things exist simultaneously. Those two things are the same thing. Not just existing together, but the same. So, when we talk about being the hands and eyes of Guan Yin. We're talking about our capacity to bring the warmth of spring to the crystalline wisdom of winter. Not to replace it, but to join with it and to create this new thing, this earth household, not only for ourselves, but for all beings together. So as we think about the seasons of awakening, we think about going around and around in this cycle. We think about doing the, the careful work of the autumn in order 
to be able to stand on that beautiful bare ground of winter in order to be able to bring warmth to melt the snow to help create the earth household which reaches its fullness in the summer and then tips over into autumn again and around and around it goes in the world inside ourselves around and around and around it goes how could we possibly think that we could control that how can we possibly think that we could somehow corral that process into careful little channels please don't try please have the courage to let the cycle pull you in and take you along with it have the courage to discover what your autumn is your winter your spring and your summer have the courage to trust in what's happening even if you don't understand it there's something so much bigger going on and it's interested in you how cool is that let it be interested let it pick you up and carry you a while because that's the offer become wintry become simple find that simple clarity of the natural world in you that is to bring the earth household inside of us each thing in the natural world so simple so clear and simultaneously part of this vast interrelated interconnected interpermeated network that we can't possibly understand in its complexity both those things are true but the pinyon doesn't need to understand in any cognitive way that whole network in order to be a pinyon it just no, has to know how to do that really well and in doing that there is this other kind of understanding this heart mind to heart mind understanding that the japanese women spoke about it through this interrelated network they said that's how all things speak to each other heart mind to heart mind so if we can find that simplicity and clarity of each thing in the earth household and we open our hearts to the network then we participate in the network without having to understand it all without having to figure it out we participate with our very simplicity and clarity and our willingness please as we sink into this beautiful winter be willing 
if you are willing, if you stay willing, the rest will take care of itself. Are there any simple winter-like comments or questions to Sarah and Andrew? Do either of you have anything you'd like to add? Andrew? Anyone else? Still night, cold waters, no fish are biting. I fill my boat with moonlight and go home. What's the last one? I, feel I fill my my boat with moonlight and go home. Isn't that a death poem? I just read that. <laughs> a death poem? Yeah, in the death poem book. And it's it's been repurposed for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not in this case. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Anything else? Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.